This sermon was preached by Pastor John Rasmussen at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. We will uh, turn our attention now to God's Word, and uh, during the sermon series this season of Lent, we have just one single reading that we're focusing on, uh, on the theme of reconciliation. And today we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. I'd really encourage you to grab a Bible, open it up, uh, page 864. Uh, we're going to really go like verse by verse through this text and then see what it means for our lives. And so uh, Luke 7, verse 36 through 50. And you can take sermon notes in your reconciled booklet on page 15. So as we read this text, I want you to think about this scene in the Gospel of Luke as sort of like if you go to a, an art museum and you'd stare at a masterpiece work of art. And, and you might take, you know, a good five, ten minutes to just stare at that piece of art and interpret it and think about what it means for you, the way that you interpret it uh, from your perspective. And, you know, the church has preserved this sacred scene that took place in the ministry of Jesus for us to think about and behold, just like a, a piece of art. Uh, really, this, this text is, it's like a portrait. It's like a masterpiece work of art that communicates the beauty of reconciliation. Um, and so have that in mind as, as we read this text. So chapter 7 of Luke's gospel, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the large debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. So hopefully you got your Bible out. We're going to start at verse 36 and go uh, section by section. 
working through this text. And uh, just to start, let's look at the context. Whenever you read Scripture, it's important to understand what's going on around the Scripture that you're reading. Uh, there, there, this, this text is within a whole book, right, within a whole chapter, chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel. And so, a few things to note about the context. In chapter 7, right before this scene, uh, Jesus has been preaching and teaching, healing people, casting out demons, uh, and there's really been a mixed response. Uh, there has been the response of the Pharisees and the tax or the Pharisees and the lawyers, the experts in Jewish law. Uh, they, for the most part, have been pretty complacent, pretty meh, you know, whatever about Jesus. In fact, they've been uh, offended by him and resisted him openly. And so, uh, not a great response from the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And then on the other hand, you have this great, this deep spiritual hunger that uh, the, the sinners of Jesus' day had. And so you have people who are known as public notorious sinners. You have tax collectors, you have uh, sinners, prostitutes, people who were kind of written off as beyond help by the religious leaders. And those people are attracted to Jesus' message. They're hearing the word of forgiveness. They're repenting and turning from their sins, and they're following Jesus. And so, you have these, this kind of, these two paths that people are taking. Some people are bored and complacent or openly hostile to Jesus. Other people are hungry for His words and His teaching. Now, so now we get a, a scene here in verse 36 that I think really helps us process those two different ways of responding to Jesus. You're going to have this sinful woman, uh, probably a prostitute, who is coming to Jesus in love and devotion and faith. And then you have this Pharisee who, who is really holding Jesus at arm's length and is heart of heart, uh, blind really to his need for forgiveness. And so we begin in verse 36. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, usually when we encounter the Pharisees, they're giving Jesus a really hard time. But, but here we see that not all of the Pharisees were openly hostile to Jesus. Uh, I suppose that Simon the Pharisee is kind of testing the waters with Jesus. He wants to kind of see, is this Jesus... Um, a good rabbi? Is he one who conforms to my expectations and my beliefs, as people so often do with Jesus? And so, this invitation to dinner uh, was kind of, I think, a way of kind of checking Jesus out. So, not outright hostility, but not outright warmth either. Now, the invitation to eat with somebody in the early, uh, for, uh, the first century world would be, would be a something only extended to somebody that you counted as worthy of table fellowship. So to eat with somebody meant that, that you approved of that person, at least to a certain extent. And, and so um, the Pharisees are counting Jesus as pure enough to eat with them because the Pharisees would only eat with people they considered to be pure and righteous. Now, it may be that Jesus was actually the synagogue preacher that day. Uh, likely this is a Sabbath meal, so the Jews would gather for a, a Sabbath meal uh, after synagogue worship. And so uh, perhaps Jesus was the preacher that day, and they said, oh, Jesus, what are you doing for lunch? Do you want to come over? And that might be what's going on here. Uh, but what happens next is not going to create a great impression of Jesus on behalf of the Pharisees. So verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner 
when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So we have this woman who, who we don't know a lot about her, except we know that she is described as a sinner. And so likely this meant that she was known within her village or town as a prostitute, as uh, somebody who had committed adultery and sexual immorality. And uh, so she would have been labeled by the Pharisees in particular as one who was uh, beyond hope. Now, how in the world did she get into the house? Um, we have to understand a little bit about the way houses were, were built back then. Um, you know, the, the concept of privacy is a modern invention. Privacy did not really exist in the ancient world. I mean, you had like big families living in really close quarters. Uh, you don't have like, you know, glass doors and, and things like that, or glass uh, separating windows and things like that. And so uh, this, um, in this village, as they were having this meal uh, around table, uh, people would sometimes maybe drop in and, and drop their ear into the conversation, listen to what the Pharisees were discussing and teaching, um, and so there wasn't really the same concept of privacy as we have in this day. And so maybe the woman was just listening to the conversation, and she's gradually drawn into that conversation, attracted to the presence of Jesus, to the point where she crosses a boundary. I think you can kind of feel and tell that this woman would not be welcomed by the Pharisees, right? And so it takes some real courage for her to enter into this space, in fact, I would say that the Pharisees would rather have this woman die in her sin than contaminate their purity. And so this is not a welcome space as the Pharisees are gathered around dinner. So what is it that drove her into this space where she was not welcomed by the Pharisees? At first glance, as I've always read this text, I thought that it was guilt that drove her into the presence of Jesus, that, that she had just had this enormous weight of guilt because of her sins and the way she'd lived her life. And, and so that burden drove her to Jesus in tears of repentance, uh, where she would then hear the words, your sins are forgiven. I actually don't think that's right. Uh, as I've studied this text more closely, I believe it's more likely that she had already heard the forgiving words of Jesus, and it's those forgiving words of Jesus given to her that drove her to uh, show an act of devotion to Jesus and gratitude. So, um, we know that Jesus was teaching and preaching. We know that He was healing people, uh, casting out demons, and, and so it could be that this woman was a recipient of Jesus' healing. Uh, in fact, we read at the beginning of chapter 8, um, if you look at chapter 8, uh, it says in chapter 8, verse 2, also some woman, women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities were following Jesus. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Now you almost kind of wonder if maybe that's who this is. We don't know. We can't really say for sure. Uh, but, but maybe this woman had heard the, the forgiving words of Jesus through his preaching, through a direct encounter with Jesus, and she's coming to him to, to show her gratitude and her thanks. 
In fact, that's what I think is going on with this alabaster flask of ointment. Uh, this would have been a very pricey thing. And so maybe she bought it to bring it to Jesus for this occasion to anoint him. Uh, or maybe she had it. And, and this would be like a major expense. Like, and, and the way they made these bottles is that once you broke it open, it was spent. Like you couldn't seal it back up and use it little by little like you might do with aftershave balm or something like that. No, once you broke it open, it was spent. And she's spending this all on Jesus. So I want you to imagine this scene with me uh, because if you were there, you would have felt awkward. See, Jesus is reclining, and, and you have to get in your, your mind the way that people ate in this time. They weren't sitting at, like, Thanksgiving dinner, where, where the woman comes up to Jesus who's seated in a chair. That's what we get in our minds. But no, in an in ancient Near Eastern context of eating, uh, Jesus would have been reclining on the left hand and eating with right hand on his side, and feet would be pointing out from the table, because the feet are the unclean part of the body. You don't want that near the food. And so all these people are gathered around the table, feet pointing outward, reclining. And so as she is standing over, I imagine in the dim candlelight, you can maybe see her, you know, kind of approaching Jesus. And she's standing in front of his feet and she begins to weep. And as she weeps, the tears begin to hit the feet of Jesus and mix with the dust and the dirt of his feet. And then seeing that this is, you know, making his feet muddy and, and you know, dappled with, with, uh, with water, she kneels down and she takes down her hair. Uh, I suppose she didn't have a towel on hand, and so she just uses what's closest. She uses her hair to wipe the feet of Jesus. Now, this would have been shocking for everybody there because we read in, in later Jewish writings that uh, the act of putting down your hair in public would have been grounds for divorce. Uh, a woman in this day would only let down her hair in front of her husband. Putting down your hair in public was basically saying, I'm available. And, and so even Jewish, later Jewish writers would equate putting down the hair with going topless. And so you can imagine that this was shocking to everybody. But you just imagine this woman loses all sense of propriety in the moment because she's so devoted to ministering to Jesus. Really surprising. It would have been shocking and offensive. And then she begins to, to kiss his feet. Um, that unclean part of the body, the feet, she begins to, to kiss his feet. Um, this would have been awkward and even offensive and uh, given her profession, it would have made the Pharisees uh, suspicious. Now, let's look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee, this is Simon, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, the Pharisee, Simon, expects a prophet like Jesus to act toward this woman the way that he, Simon, would act. And this would be publicly chastising and casting her out, shaming her, berating her uh, because of her sins. You know, so in, in Simon's mind, this woman is deplorable. She's untouchable. She's a person who has no right to be near a man of God, let alone touch him. But notice how Jesus accepts her devotion. 
And Jesus uses it to teach the Pharisee a lesson about God's heart, his heart, which is reconciliation. So verse 40, and Jesus answering said to Simon, notice that Jesus can tell Simon's heart. Uh, Maybe he can just see the scowl on his face. And Jesus answering said to Simon, remember not Simon Peter, Simon the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Jesus said, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And they could not pay. He canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the large debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Now, Jesus does what he so often does. He, he goes after a difficult point by telling a story that drives the point home. Jesus tells a story about owing debts that can never be paid off. So, a denarius is one day's wage. It's what you would get for working from sunrise to sundown. One denarius. And it, it would barely allow ends to be met. Barely enough to live on. Now, paying back 50 denarii would be like working 50 extra days when you're already working six days from sunrise to sundown and you can't work on the Sabbath. And so this is impossible. I mean, this is a month and a half of extra full days of work when you don't have any to spare. And so if 50 is impossible, imagine 500. Now, I think we can see that in the story, uh, the moneylender represents God, right? And debt represents sin. And this is a reminder that when we sin, we owe God. We create a real debt to our Creator. And it's a debt that we cannot pay God back. In fact, when you try to pay God back with your resolutions and your good works and your efforts, it's actually counterfeit currency. It's like trying to pay the bank with monopoly money. In fact, the harder you try, the worse it makes, the more debt it creates. And so, like the moneylender, God does something amazing, something just amazingly generous. God cancels the debt of both. Out of mercy, God simply cancels the debt. But I want you to see something here that you might miss. Canceling the debt is not without cost, right? If somebody owes you either $5,000 or $50,000 and you cancel that debt, you eat that cost, right? You absorb that cost. You have to make up for what's lost. And this is exactly what we see happening in the cross of Christ. It's in the cross of Jesus that, that God is, is, is taking our debt. He's sta- Jesus is standing in our place. Uh, that in our opening liturgy, we spoke those words, He made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, He never sinned, God made Him to be sin, to pay the debt, so that we might become righteous before God. And so this is what we see happening in the cross. You see, forgiveness is always costly. It always costs something. And even though you and me receive it for free, it's costly to the one who gives it, God. Now, the punchline is this. Obviously, anyone who has a debt canceled that he can't pay will love the person 
who paid it. I mean, how would you approach, how would you feel towards somebody who paid all of your credit card debt that haunts you from month to month, who paid all of your student loan debt, or who paid the full amount of your mortgage? How would you feel toward that person who liberated you freely from your debt? I mean, you, you would, at the very least, be completely thankful, right? And so Jesus is driving home the point, who will love more? The person who had 50 denarii canceled or 500? The person who is a 50 sinner who's forgiven or a 500 sinner? Who's going to love more? And so Simon the Pharisee gets it, but you notice that he's not all that excited about the answer. Did you notice how he says, I suppose the one who had the greater debt will love more, right? I think the the message clicked, but he didn't like the answer. Let's move on now to verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. You can kind of see what Jesus did here, right? Jesus is pointing out that this woman whom Simon despises as beyond help, as, as, an, as a sinner, this woman shows Jesus over-the-top hospitality that, that was even unasked for, that goes beyond what's even required, whereas Simon did not show any of the normal, proper hospitality to Jesus. So when you would come to somebody's house for dinner in the ancient world, it was customary uh, to provide water to wash your feet, That'd be like, you know, if you come to somebody's house and you use the bathroom first and wash your hands before dinner. It'd be customary for you to greet that person with a kiss, which would be like a handshake or a hug these days. And, and it would also be customary to provide oil uh, for anointing the face. Uh, so this is a very dry, arid climate. And so being out in the sun all day in the heat It was customary to take oil and to anoint yourself, kind of like you use chapstick, right? And yet this was not given to Jesus when he came. And so can you see how the Pharisee, who doesn't know his deep need for grace and forgiveness, is holding Jesus at arm's length, failing to show basic hospitality. And yet this woman who had made a complete mess of her life, right, and who was known for being a notorious public sinner, she's the one who shows Jesus this overflowing, abundant hospitality. And so what Jesus is showing is that those who know the depth of their sins and the depth of their forgiveness will love more. They'll love deeply. Whereas those who think they have little, little debt to be paid before God, they will love little It's good to talk a little bit also about verse 47. Verse 47 is easily misunderstood. So verse 47 says this. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, 
her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, the wrong way to read this text would be to say that that Jesus is, is teaching that by showing much love, this woman earned the forgiveness and the grace of God. Uh, this is an interpretation that the Roman church took around the time of Martin Luther. They, were try- they would use this text to say, see, it's not just by grace. It's not just by faith. It's by works. By loving much, she was forgiven much. But if you look at the story more clearly, that's not what Jesus is saying. For one, it makes no sense of the parable, right? Because in the parable, does the moneylender cancel the debt because of any worthiness or devotion of the debtors. No, it's completely by grace. But it's that grace that causes love. So Jesus is saying that those who have been forgiven much will love much. And and that makes no sense if we say that that love is earned by love or that grace is earned by showing love. That's not what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says, for she loved much, he's showing that the love and the devotion she's showing is evidence of the forgiveness she already received. And that's what really makes sense of the story, that this woman, previous to this encounter, had heard the forgiveness of Jesus, received it by faith, and then comes and shows love and devotion to Jesus on the basis of that free forgiveness. And that's why in verse 50, uh, he says to the woman, you are what? Your faith has saved you. He doesn't say your love has saved you. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Verse 48. And he said to her, to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, one question we might have is, well, if she already experienced the forgiveness of Jesus before this scene, then why is Jesus speaking it to her in this moment? Uh, well, if you have these Pharisees who are, who are pointing the finger at her and counting her as a sinner, notice how Jesus is publicly forgiving her. He's publicly affirming that she is forgiven. She's no longer to live in shame and scorn, but she has been reinstituted, reinstated into the community given her dignity back in the presence of those who would judge her, right? And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's publicly absolving her. uh, And then he's saying, go in peace, your faith has saved you. That go in peace isn't just peace with God. It's relational peace with the community. Jesus is saying, you are now a loved and accepted member of this this community. You are no longer determined by your past sins, your past profession. You're free to go. So this story is just amazing. I mean, we, we could just, we could spend 20 sermons on it, and I'm not even joking. Like, we really could, maybe more than that. And there's so much here. And I just want circle to circle down to just, just a couple takeaways um, of how this text impacts our lives. The first thing is this, is that you don't have to live in shame and guilt. Oftentimes when you come to worship, I I know you come burdened with guilt and shame. Sometimes it's really hard to get here to church because there's there's a barrier in your mind between you and God because of your sins. And and you just it's hard. It's hard to show up, right? 
And it's hard to admit the reality of, of sin in your life because you've seen the way that, that, you know, sometimes we make a really big mess of our lives, of our relationships. We, we sin in ways that we, we, it's hard for us to just let go and accept God's forgiveness. And sometimes we get trapped in these cycles, you know, where we just find ourselves hating ourselves. Thinking, if I hate myself enough, then maybe God will forgive me. Or maybe thinking, if, if, if I'm just really hard on myself, if I don't show myself grace, if I feel really bad, then God will show me grace. Doesn't this story just put an end to that? Does Jesus do that to this woman? Your conscience might do that to you. But Jesus doesn't do this. I mean, some of you are just replaying stuff you did 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Or, or maybe it's a, it's a habit that you're just trapped in and you're, you're just feeling guilt all the time. And what you need to hear is that when you confess your sins, they are gone. Forgiven. And this story is proof. You're not forgiven because of how bad you feel. You're forgiven because of what Jesus did for you. Right? And Jesus invites you to live in the dignity of that forgiveness. You don't have to be a a second-class Christian. There's dignity here that Jesus gives you in his forgiving, absolving words. Another thing that we take away from this is that there is a direct relationship between how much you've been forgiven of and how much you love Jesus. Um. Let's just admit, we're, we're not all 50 sinners here. We're 500 sinners, right? Because if you actually look at your life, if you look at your thoughts, your words, your deeds, the things you've done, the things you've left undone, if during those, those moments of confession each Sunday where we think in very specific terms about God's law, you will see that you have a debt you can't pay. But when you realize that that debt is canceled every day, What does Luther say in the catechism? He daily and richly forgives all my sins. What does that do to your heart? Doesn't that liberate you to love Jesus, to cling to him for life, right? You see, the Pharisee holds Jesus Jesus at arm's length, right? Because he doesn't see himself as in need. This is often what cultural Christianity does. We've talked about that, right? Cultural Christianity where... You know, I only need God in emergencies or special, uh, special occasions. You know, I'm not really all that committed to my church community. That's holding Jesus at arm's length because cultural Christianity doesn't know it needs a savior. Real discipleship comes and falls at the feet of Jesus because it knows it needs a savior and it has a savior. It has forgiveness. So do you want to love Jesus more? I hope so. The way you're going to love Jesus more is by daily remembering how much you've been released from. Um, We often think that guilt is a good tool to make us better people. It's not. It can get our attention to show us that something's wrong, but it is only the love of Christ for you that changes your heart. And then finally, I think this helps us understand what kind of community we're called to be here. 
Of course, we're a community of repentance. We want to be turning away from our sins because we know that sin damages ourselves. It damages relationships. It, it really violates our humanity in every way we break the commandments. Um, we, we, we're, gonna, we're not going to say sin's okay in this community. Um, that's not what Jesus did. But we are called to be a community where anybody who wants to have recovery... Anybody who wants to have forgiveness, anybody who wants to walk in the opposite direction of their sins and be in the struggle, that there's forgiveness. Um, we're, we're, we're all sinners in recovery. We don't want to be sinners in denial, saying, I don't have a problem, I'm okay. We're called to be sinners in recovery, and we gather here to get better, to be made well. And so we have a lot in common with this woman. Uh, as sinners, she's like our patron saint, right? Um, we identify with her, and we walk the walk that she walked of receiving forgiveness from Jesus, which causes us to love him deeply. Amen. Amen.